Greetings, beloved, and welcome to another edition of Modern Day Truth Ministries. Uh, Jesus loves you, and we continue to pray for each and every one of you each and every day. Uh, Today's message uh, comes from the fact that whether you are a lifelong or what I like to call a veteran Christian or a new believer, uh, the topic today is one that we cannot seem to get away from within Christianity. And it seems as though everyone has an opinion on this subject. And today is a very simple message. I seek to talk to you about Jesus and the Bible. I want to attack today's message from another angle, an angle that I have not uh, approached within these messages, but I have over the course of my preaching career. I think that we as Christians, sometimes in our zeal and emphasis on the New Testament, either unintentionally, but also, even in some other cases, intentionally devalue or disregard the Old Testament. Too often, whether it's believers or even the seminaries or us from the pulpit, the Old Testament is relegated to war, those dreaded genealogies, and the books of the law. Occasionally, we find ourselves dipping into them, Daniel and Zechariah and the Old Testament prophets, when we're wanting to talk about end-time prophecy. But there is a dangerous path being set forth of being Christians of half the Bible. When we diminish the Old Testament, we do a very dangerous thing. Yes, I know that the Gospels tell the story of Jesus' life, ministry, and death and resurrection. Uh, We know the stories of the early church, Peter, Paul, Timothy, and Barnabas, and many others. As many of you know, a few episodes back, I talked about James and the misconceptions within the church. And today, I want to address the misconceptions and myth of the Old Testament that we find within Christianity as they relate to the Old Testament. Within Christianity, it seems, from my observations with what you would call new believers and lifelong believers and even clergy, that many feel we ought to view the Old Testament as Christian scripture, but we're not quite sure why or how to do so. Often within our culture, it is said, out with the old and in with the new. But when it comes to the Old Testament and the New Testament, that simply is not the case. Perhaps we'd be helped by a simple framework for how Christ is at the heart of the scriptures. He is pattern, promised, and present from Genesis to Revelation. The Old Testament itself has 39 of the 66 books. The other 27 are found within the New. When you disregard the Old Testament, you are essentially throwing away 59% of the Bible. If you throw out the Old Testament, that's almost 60% of the Word of God that you are throwing away. And as believers, that is simply inexcusable. I'm sure some of you are familiar with Andy Stanley. About two years ago, he wrote a book, and uh, there's also a sermon that accompanies this online. But Andy Stanley, if you are unfamiliar, is the pastor of North Point Community Church in Georgia. 
within that time frame, he had announced that Christians needed to unhitch the Old Testament from their understanding of the faith. By this, he means to instruct people to ignore the Old Testament and focus solely on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, especially in the case of evangelism. This statement was part of a sermon series as well as a a book that he wrote encouraging those who have left the church to reconsider Christianity. He says, Jesus' new covenant, his covenant with the nations, his covenant with you, his covenant with us can stand on its own. Two nail-scarred resurrection feet. It does not need propping up by the Jewish scriptures. The Bible did not create Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus created and launched Christianity. Your whole house of Old Testament cards can come tumbling down. The question is, did Jesus rise from the dead? And the eyewitnesses said he did. Pastor Stanley continues, Unhitching the Old Testament from the new is liberating for men and women who are drawn to the simple message that God loves you so much he sent his son to pave the way to a relationship with you. It's liberating for people who need and understand grace, who need and understand forgiveness. And it's liberating for people who find it virtually impossible to embrace the dynamic, the worldview, and the values depicted in the story of ancient Israel. I want to preface this as I'm not specifically picking on Pastor Stanley. Pastor Stanley isn't the only one who holds this premise. Other pastors have have said similar things, and there have been countless books that have come out with this premise. To all of them, this is a response to these assertions. And to these assertions, I have a retort. We cannot preach the gospel message without the doctrines of the Old Testament, such as our sinful nature found in Genesis 3. In Acts 2, when Peter preached a sermon to the Jews during Pentecost, he started with Christ crucified crucified, and thousands were saved. Why, you may ask? And the simple answer is because the Jews had the Old Testament background to understand the message of the cross. Brothers and sisters, how can we understand the idea of biblical grace and forgiveness without the understanding and the history in the Old Testament that shows why we need God's grace and forgiveness? and why we as human beings cannot earn these things. Without that knowledge, grace and forgiveness are whatever we want them to be, and thus the message becomes perverted. And more importantly, why do we need a relationship with God through his Son? Why can't I just come to God on my own merit? Well, we need Christ because we're sinners, and our relationship with God is destroyed because of that sin, according to to the book of Genesis. We need the perfect sacrifice of the Savior applied to us so that we can approach a holy God. The gospel is only liberating to sinners because it is grounded in history. Without the history of the Old Testament, it is merely an unintelligible message. Those of you who know me or who have heard me speak enough know that I have a love for the story of Acts 17. Paul and the Athenians. Paul, in his zeal to spread the gospel, is at the epicenter of of what we call modern thought, the the intellectuals of that time, the, the land of Aristotle and Socrates. But you see, when Paul did the same thing that Peter did... 
in pagan Athens in Acts 17, his message fell flat because they did not understand who God was and why Jesus needed to die and be raised again. But when Paul started with the history in Genesis, when Paul started from the beginning in the Old Testament, laying the foundation for the gospel, some people were saved and others wanted to learn more. And our post-Christian culture is definitely a Greek culture, much like Paul addressed in Acts 17. We can't present the meat of the gospel message without the foundational background of the Old Testament. If you have not read this book called Jesus on Every Page by David Murphy, a, a lifelong Christian or a new believer will find a great set of value in this book. David Murray guides the reader down his own Emmaus Road, describing how the scriptures were open to him, revealing Jesus from Genesis 1 through Revelation 22. The resurrection can certainly stand on its own two feet, so to speak. But it needs the history in the Old Testament to have any real meaning to a believer. Pastor Stanley, like many others, does give a nod to the Old Testament as the quote-unquote backstory, but completely ignores the doctrinal implications and importance in understanding the New Testament. In fact, the Old Testament is so essential to the New Testament writings that the New Testament is built on a substantial amount of the Old. Indeed, the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament a grand total of 855 times. That's about 27% of the New Testament is quotations of the Old Testament. Paul himself was what we would call a scholar of those Old Testament books, and Paul many times in his writings cites and references the writings of the Old. Even more importantly, Jesus tells all of us, any of us who read his words, what the Old Testament is about. In short, Jesus says, it is about me. The Jesus of Nazareth found in the New Testament, the Jesus we speak of when we preach the gospel, the Jesus who can only bring us salvation, that same Jesus who was crucified and resurrected, that same Jesus is found in the pages of the Old Testament. Friends, there is no finer teacher on whether Jesus is found on the pages of the Old Testament than the teaching of our Lord and Savior Jesus himself. Turn with me to John, the fifth chapter. We're going to look at John chapter 5, verses 38 and 40. John chapter 5, verses 38 and 40. This is Jesus himself speaking, and verse 38 reads, but you, you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Jesus is clearly saying here, you search the scriptures, for in them you think that you have life eternal. And these same scriptures in which you search, these testify 
to me. Jesus is speaking of the Tanakh, the 39 books of the Old Testament. You see, there was no New Testament at that time. Jesus himself says, these pages of the Old Testament point you to me. These identify me. You see, Jesus is not through with driving home this point. If you would turn with me to Luke, the 25th chapter, this is Luke 25, and we're going to look at verses 25 through 37. Luke, the 25th chapter, verses 25 through 27. And some background here is Jesus is speaking to Cleopas and another unnamed disciple after his resurrection. Luke 25, verses 25 through 27. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus here, after he is raised from the dead, after his resurrection, rebukes Cleophas and this other unnamed disciple for their unbelief. Jesus once again references the Old Testament prophets from the beginning with Moses and all the way through. And not only does he reference them, but he expounds on these ideas further. He breaks it down in great simplicity, it says in Luke. The ideas and all things in these scriptures concerning himself. He says, you guys did not believe that it was me who rose from the dead, so let us talk about the prophets. Let us talk about the things that reveal who I am, and let me expound on these further, so then you may believe. People of God, are we so foolish? Jesus himself is saying, hello, I am right here. If you look in these scriptures, if you read these pages, this same Jesus who is crucified and resurrected is the same Jesus found within the writings of the Old Testament. Now, to most of us as believers, this would settle the argument. Jesus is the great decider. He says... He can be found in the Old Testament, so that should settle it. However, to many others, and Pastor Stanley included, it does not. And it's evident in this postmodern Christian culture in which we live. In order to keep Christians away from the Old Testament, Old Testament, many have adopted a number of strategies. One of those strategies is to insist on as much discontinuity as possible between the covenants both Old and New Covenants. I want to say plainly that these are unbiblical myths that are inherently dangerous to the Christian faith. Here are a few examples. The Old Covenant is about hating enemies, and the New Covenant is about loving them. The Old Covenant is filled with misogyny, where women are commodities, but under the New, they are partners. In the Old Covenant, God is holy, and in the New Covenant, God is love. In the Old Covenant, God is angry, but in the New Covenant, God is brokenhearted. In the Old Covenant, they depended on the Bible alone, and in the New Covenant, we just love people. Friends, this belief stokes a radical discontinuity between the covenants in a matter reflective 
of hermeneutics of classical, classical dispensationalism. This may motivate people to unhitch from the old covenant, but whether it faithfully represents that covenant is another matter. And I will break this down further as this is deception in its highest order. Many use Jesus' Sermon on the Mount found in Matthew 5, for instance. They use this for the love your enemy argument. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Many, due to these assertions, mistakenly assume that Jesus is arguing against the Old Covenant itself. Nowhere does the Old Testament say, hate your enemy. Frankly, it's not there. Theologians, therefore, have rightly recognized that Jesus is arguing against the pharisaical distortions and abuses of that old covenant. After all, even the Old Testament says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. That is found in Proverbs 25:21. The problem is very simple here. Many confuse distortions of that Old Covenant with the Old Covenant itself. Some would suggest this next point is where we should start the conversation. Some have asked what the early Christians did in relation to the Old and New Testament. Would the church fathers of the second and third centuries have agreed with this postmodern view? And I would say, no, they did not. They not only read, studied, and used the Old Testament in worship, but they insisted that Christ was their main subject. The Old Testament was valuable because Christ was there. This is a matter of very easily verifiable church history. Friends, we have to realize that the authority and the identity of Jesus is linked to the truth of the Old Testament. Once again, Jesus said, the Old Testament testifies to me. Time after time in scripture, we see the new and the old walking in lockstep in total sync without a hiccup. We see this with both Psalms and Acts. King David predicts the resurrection of Jesus Christ back in 1000 BC, a thousand years before Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. And if you would turn with me, we're going to look at two passages, uh, the first being Psalms uh, chapter 16, verses 8 through 11, and Acts chapter 2, verses 30 and 31. Psalms, the 16th chapter, and we're going to look at verses 8 through 11. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, and I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, no, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will... Show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Turn with me now to Acts chapter 2. This is Acts the second chapter. So we know that David writes in Psalms and then the writer of Acts is speaking about Peter's sermon at Pentecost. This is Acts the second chapter, verses 30 and 31. And this is 
part of that sermon on Pentecost given by Peter. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor his flesh see corruption. David here points out that Jesus would not be abandoned to the grave, nor would he see decay. And if we remember correctly, Acts 2 is Peter's sermon on Pentecost. Not only does Peter mention this in verse 30 and 31, but in verses 25 through 28 previously, Peter specifically cites David by name and his writings in Psalm 16. Therefore, it is not unexpected that we too should find Jesus present in the events and predictions found in the Old Testament. This is just one of many instances where we see this. This is the most important sermon of the early church. At that time, Peter at Pentecost, we talk about it, we preach about it, and Peter in this sermon once again connects both the Old and the New Testament to the Savior. Friends, it is only right that we should find Jesus was both actually present in the Old Testament and accurately predicted, and that he would come first as the Savior and then later, a second coming in which he would appear as the king and supreme ruler over all the earth. Such an unusual state of affairs is possible because he was, he is, and he is the one to come. But sad to say, all too many miss both his real presence in the Old Testament narrative and the numerous predictions of both his first and second comings. The second coming of Christ is mentioned in no less than 17 of the 39 Old Testament books. So to say it's inapplicable to our present life or to say it's inapplicable to Christianity in its future, it's just downright insanity. Friends, we find the Jesus in the Old Testament. It's an introduction to the Jesus of the New Testament. Friends, the Old Testament is packed with information about the Savior. It's not just a collection of stories, genealogies, and of the law. We can find 300 plus messianic prophecies, and these are the scriptures Jesus references in John 5. He changes not from Genesis to Revelation, not from the beginning to the end. We find a very vivid picture of Christ painted throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes, yes, believe me now, he shows up in a physical form in the Old Testament, what some in theological circles call theophany or specifically Christophany, the personal appearance of Jesus before he was born in the manger in Bethlehem. I want to address a few of the Christophanies of Christ found in the Old Testament, and I will briefly touch on these, and I encourage you to reread these stories, because even though we've heard them, it's always great to read them while keeping Jesus in mind. Jesus is first seen in the Old Testament as a person who appeared as the angel of the Lord in his sudden confrontation with Sarah's maidservant Hagar, found in Genesis 16.7. 
Thereafter, he continues to appear intermittently throughout the earlier books of the Old Testament. But if we look at Genesis 16, 7, it reads, Now the angel of the Lord found by a found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. Now, many of you may ask, how do you get Jesus out of angel of the Lord? And this is key for us to understand as this relates to Jesus' other appearances in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord was a title that stood for his office, but it did not describe his nature. The Hebrew word for angel, um, malach, had the basic idea of who was sent or a messenger. Of the 214 usages of the Hebrew term used for angel, about one-third of them refer to what is labeled by theologians as a Christophany, or a temporary appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. It is certain, however, that this special angel of the Lord is divine for Hagar. And we find this in verse 13. Gave this name to the Lord, and if you look there, it is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, who spoke with her as an angel of the Lord. You are the God who sees me, as she observed. I have now seen the one who sees me. This is in Genesis 16, 13. We find additional appearances throughout the Old Testament. All are using the same Hebrew word as Genesis 16, or some variation. Here are a few others theologians agree that we would call a Christophany. I can't go into great detail because of time, but I encourage you once again to read these. Abraham in Genesis 18, Jacob in Genesis 31, 11 through 13, Genesis 32, 22 through 32, Joshua in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 and 15, Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22, and countless other occurrences. How can we as believers, how can we as readers of the Old Testament doubt that these sample instances, along with a host of other such descriptions in earlier scriptures, were anything less than pre-incarnate appearances of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the flesh, even if it was, in those days, only a temporary incarnation for the intermediate and immediate needs of the people until he would come and take on flesh permanently. Oftentimes, throughout the Old Testament, we find in these occurrences, Jesus came to earth to help his people in their distress and their need for direction. This was the case in the Old Testament, and this is the very basis of the New Testament. We were in distress and needed a Savior, and the plan of salvation that was prophesied in the Old came to fulfillment and fruition in the new. Brothers and sisters, I would like to conclude with this final point. The first presentation of the gospel is not found in Matthew or in Mark or in Luke or in John. It's not found actually in anywhere that you might think. The very first presentation of the gospel message is found in Genesis, the third chapter, verse 15. And this verse is famously called, and get ready for this, the Proto-Evangelium. 
Say that 10 times fast. Uh, Proto-evangelium is a compound word of two Greek words, protos meaning first and evangelion meaning good news or gospel. Thus, the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis 3.15 is commonly referred to as the first mention of the good news of salvation in the Bible. And if you would turn with me there, we're going to read this quickly. It is Genesis, the third chapter, verse 15. Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Remember, if we remember the story, this is after Adam and Eve have sinned in the garden. And first, God curses the serpent above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, Genesis 3.14. As the animal that strove to bring ruin to God's good creation, it is fitting for the serpent to be punished for its deed. Notably, it is given to eat dust, meaning not that dirt will provide sustenance for the creature, but this is the Bible instead alluding to its defeat. Eating dust is a biblical metaphor for humiliation, and this is found in Micah chapter 7, verses 16 and 17. This figurative language is a clue that the curse upon the serpent is not simply an explanation for why men fear snakes. Furthermore, we should not quickly pass over the presence of a talking serpent in this story, as such does not happen every day. Something more profound is going on here than a conflict between man and beast. As Genesis 3.15 reveals, man versus serpent is actually a cosmic struggle. It is God who perpetuates enmity between the human race and its primal enemy. The seed of the woman will be bruised by the destructive efforts of the seed of the serpent, but the woman's descendants will fight back. Every time a snake bites, we will be reminded of the war between God and the one who first tempted us to sin. Likewise, when we see a serpent licking the dust of defeat, we are reminded that this struggle will not last forever. The seed of the woman has bruised the head of his enemy and he will crush it, and mankind is given the tactical advantage over the serpent. There will be a real war, but God will graciously graciously give his people the victory. And I want you to notice something in this. We see that in Genesis 3.15, we see that the words he and his, the H's are both capital. Anytime this happens in scripture, we know who the Bible is talking about. Jesus. He shall bruise your head and he, and you shall bruise, capital H, his heel. Genesis is saying there is a seed who is coming. And you may bruise his heel, but Satan, he's going to come upside your head. Satan thought that he had victory over Christ at the cross. That is the bruising of his heel. I can only imagine how Satan may have danced and carried on outside the tomb as Jesus laid there awaiting that first day of the week. Satan believed he had humanity in its clutches, and just like the serpent, he was going in 
for the kill, but in a miracle of mercy, God stepped in and said, I love you, and I can make something out of you. When justice demanded that humanity gives up and die, mercy stepped in and said, I will give you another chance. Genesis 3.15 is a reminder. Thank you, Lord, for the grace that has fixed us up and given us a second chance, because Jesus will come again. Romans 16.20 says, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Just like it was prophesied in Genesis 3.15 that the serpent shall bruise his heel, but he shall bruise the serpent's head, Paul reminds us that God will crush Satan under the seed of the woman's foot, and that we have eternal victory in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you to not just read the Old Testament, but to read it with Jesus in mind, because the Bible from cover to cover has Jesus on every page. The relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament is one of strong continuity and progressive revelation. The Old Testament lays a foundation and connects everything within the New Testament. Jesus unites the Bible. He is not absent from the Old, sitting on the sidelines waiting for his time to come. As his time is from the beginning, as is in the present, and remains in the future. After all, it was John who proclaims one of the most impactful and deepest theological points of our faith found in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was, was made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of man, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend. John illustrated in that passage that Jesus was there in the beginning. Jesus was present was as present in Genesis as he was in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He was in the beginning, he is in the now, and as we see in Revelation, he is in the future. He will come again. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Until we meet again, my friends, God bless. Thank you for joining us. You can find us on Twitter at Modern Day Truth, uh, as well as other episodes of the podcast available on every major platform, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and many others. Uh, simply search Modern Day Truth Ministries. Until we meet again, God bless.